thank you, Praise Band, for leading us in worship. And so thankful for Chris and Steve helping to head that up right now during our interim period. And so we're in John chapter 5 this morning. If you've got your Bibles turned on or open, if you turn to John chapter 5. And, and I want you to think about this. Have you ever thought about the life's most important question? I mean, everybody are, are asking questions these days. I mean, just everybody asks questions. I don't know if you read about it this past week, but I saw in the news where the government, uh, they want to send people uh, city by city, community by community, house to house, door to door, and they have a question for you. They want to ask you is this question, have you been vaccinated? For them, that's life's most important question. I was thinking about for a child this morning. You know, a child, they have a question as well, right? I mean, they have life's most important question for them is why? Why? And if you're a parent this morning and you hear that a lot, don't get tired of answering the why questions. That's a very important question for you to answer. And I know it can get wearisome at times, but you need to give honest, truthful, thoughtful answers to those why questions. You know, a lot of young people leave the church because they've asked important questions and they really have never been given honest, truthful, thoughtful uh, responses. And for some people, the most important question is, will you marry me? You know, uh, every day some young man is trying to muster up enough courage to say to his sweetheart, will you marry me? You know, if, if you are asking someone to marry you, that is a very important question. You know, if uh, someone is asking you to marry them, well, that's a very important question. But that's not life's most important question, but it is a very important question. You know, I, I heard about uh, uh, two elderly people. They were living in a, a retirement home in Florida. Uh, the, the man, he was a widower, and the woman was a widow, and they'd been living in the same retirement uh, community for some time, so they knew each other very well, and they were attending some type of community event in that retirement community down in Florida. And uh, they were spending some time together, and he was sitting across the table from her, and he finally got up enough nerve. He wanted to ask her a very important question. And he asked her, he said, you know, will you marry me? And she hesitated for about six seconds. And she said, I'd love to marry you. I'm just so delighted. And he was excited and she was excited. And so they talked for a little while. When that event was over, he went to his home and she went to her home. Well, the next morning, that, that old elderly man, that widower, he woke up and he was distressed. He was beside himself. He thought, you know, I remember asking her last night if she would marry me, but I cannot for the life of me remember what she said. <laughs> He was embarrassed by it. He was kind of reluctant, but he felt like he needed to call her. So he called her on the phone. He said, you know, uh, I, I just want to talk to you for a few minutes. You know, I remember last night I asked you a very important question. I asked you if you would marry me. And I, I just, and my memory's not what it used to be. And I just couldn't remember what you said. And she said, well, you know, I told you I would love to marry you. I would be delighted to marry you. She said, I'm so glad you called because I remembered saying yes last night, but I just couldn't remember who asked me. <laughs> You know, you know. The question, will you marry me, is an important question. And, and if you are contemplating that, you should be careful in how you uh, consider that question. But it's not life's most important question. But I do believe that life's most important question is found right here in John chapter 5. And it's kind of hidden there. And so uh, we're going to begin reading in John chapter 5, verse 1. And I want you just to follow along with me for a few moments. And after this... There was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now there was in Jerusalem by the sheep gate a pool, which is called in Hebrew Bethesda. And it had five porches, and uh, you know, uh, 
King Herod built this particular uh, place where there were five colonnades or five porches and there was a sheep gate located in that area. And, it, and that's, the sheep gate is exactly what it was called. It was a sheep gate. The shepherds would take their sheep through that gate and those sheep would be used for the sacrifices in the temple. And so near that sheep gate there would be a pool and that pool was called Bethesda and in Hebrew it means house of mercy. The house of mercy. And a few years ago, some of us who went to Israel, we went to Bethesda, to the pool of Bethesda, and we stood right there where Jesus stood just over 2,000 years ago. And so we stood in that same area, and there was this pool of Bethesda, and and apparently this pool was formulated by a hot spring, some type of maybe sulfur spring. I don't know for sure what it was, but when they excavated this particular area uh, uh, a few years ago, a number of years ago, they discovered that there had been a pagan temple that was built near or over this pool of Bethesda. A pagan temple was built there. And so they figured that out. And so the Greeks and the Romans would often build pagan temples near hot springs. Now, the reason why is because they believed that hot springs had some type of healing power. You know, if you come to First Baptist, you might think with all the ladies who are having babies that there's some, some, some type of power in our water. I don't know about that, but they believe that there was a healing power in the water. You know, last year when we went to Israel, uh, we went to the Dead Sea, and we, were, we all swam in the Dead Sea, and it was kind of cold. And uh, Art and myself, Art Jordan and myself, we swam out a little deeper into the Dead Sea, and when we got out there, it was bubbling up. The water was bubbling. It's kind of a strange phenomenon. We didn't know what to make of it, and so we decided we'd swim to it. And when we swam to it, we realized it was warm. And so we wanted to stay in that little area because the water was cold, but right there it was warm. And we tried to swim through that bubbling area. And when I did, one time I realized it had a funny smell to it. It smelled like sulfur. kind of tasted like sulfur. I thought, whoa, that's, that's pretty interesting. Well, anyway, we stayed in the Dead Sea for about an hour or so swimming in there. And when we got out, we smelled like sulfur. And uh, we saw a sign that said, don't stay in the Dead Sea more than 20 minutes at a risk to your health. I thought... Somebody should have told me that a little earlier. Well, you know, for the, for the Greeks, they believed that there was healing power in those sulfur springs. But when we read that sign, that's not what it said. It said it could be a risk to your health. But the Greeks built a temple over this pool to the Greek god Asclepius. And so this Greek god Asclepius was the god of healing or the god of a medicine. And so this temple was built around this natural spring. And any time you had a hot spring in the ancient world, people always gathered there. They gathered there because it was therapeutic. They gathered there because they were seeking some type of benefit, some health benefit. Many of them believed that those hot springs brought healing. And so they would gather there. And so in verse 3, that's what we find out. It says, In these lay a great multitude of sick people. They were blind, lame, paralyzed, They were waiting for the moving of the water. For an angel went down at a certain time into the pool and stirred up the water. And whoever stepped in first, after the stirring of water, was made well of whatever disease he had. Now there's a footnote in many of your Bibles. And it says in that footnote that verse 4 of John chapter 5 was not in the original manuscripts as far as they can tell. But that verse is very important to the context of this story. Because it tells us exactly why everybody wanted to get into the water. And we wouldn't know that if verse 4 wasn't there. And it was believed that an angel would come and stir the water. And then when that water was stirred, it had healing power. Now John is not saying that an angel came and stirred the water. 
He is not giving credence to that belief. He's not saying that, that there was an angel. He's simply telling you what people believed during that time. He's simply giving you a description of what people believed would happen when you stepped into that water. But you know, it's always strange to me. The person who needed the healing the most couldn't get into the water. Because only the healthiest and the fastest could get in there first. And so if you were really sick, you'd never make it into the water. So that's kind of contrary to what we really would think would be happening. And so there was a superstitious belief in the healing power of this water. Now look at verse 5. Now a certain man was there who had an infirmity for 38 years. And when Jesus saw him lying there, he knew that he had already been in that condition a long time. He said to him, do you want to be made well? The sick man answered, sir, I have no man to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up. And when I'm coming, another steps down before me. And Jesus said to him, rise, take up your bed and walk. Now I want you to notice this before I go any further. How did Jesus heal this man? By his word. How did God create this world? By his word. God healed him by his word. And immediately the man was made well. He took up his bed and walked. And that day was the Sabbath. Now we could go into that, but we're not going to do that today. But skip down to verse 14. Afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, See, you have been made well. Sin no more, lest a worse thing come upon you. Now I want to give you three things about this text this morning. And the first one is going to be a little complicated. It's the lethality of sin. The lethality of sin. You think, what in the world is the lethality of sin? Well, sin is lethal. Sin is deadly. Sin will render you powerless. Sin will destroy you. So sin is lethal. Now you ask, well, how did you get the lethality of sin from these verses? I don't see it in there. Well, look at verse 3. It says, a great multitude of sick people, blind, lame, and paralyzed, were laying at the pool of Bethesda. The Hebrew word for sick means to be powerless. And these people were powerless. They had no power to hear. They had no power to see. They had had no power to move. They were powerless. And then that word paralyzed in this verse, it means withered. And the Bible says that they were withered. Do you know what happens to your muscles when you don't use your muscles over a period of time? They begin to atrophy. They begin to shrink. They begin to wither. And so what's happening is here, the Bible is giving us a picture of what sin will do to you. It will render you powerless and it will uh, make you wither. And, this, and so John described a man who had an infirmity for 38 long years. And during that period of time, his body began to wither and he was powerless. Well, you say, he was powerless. Yes, he was powerless. And he was powerless because there was a sin in his life. You ask, well, how do you know that? Well, Jesus said to him in verse 14... Sin no more, lest a worse thing come upon you. So Jesus was indicating here that the reason for his illness has something to do with some sin in his life. Now we don't know what that sin was. The Bible doesn't tell us. But we know that there was some sin in his life that was the cause of his illness. Now I need to stop you before you begin to think that all diseases and all sickness comes from some personal sin. That's not true. Now, we know all sin, I mean, all disease and all illnesses come from the fall in the garden, from the sin in the garden. We do know that, but not all, sin, all sickness and disease doesn't come from some personal sin. You know, John chapter 9, 
John told a story about a man who was born blind. And the Pharisees asked Jesus one day, who sinned? This man, did he sin or did his parents sin that made him uh, become blind or be blind from birth? And Jesus said, neither this man sinned nor his parents. But this man was born blind that the glory of God may be revealed. So we do know that there's sickness and disease that is just a result of living uh, as a consequence from the fall and living in a fallen world. And not all disease is a, is a, is a result of personal sin. But I want you to know this, your personal sin can make you sick. It can make you sick. In John 5, we see a man who committed some sin. We don't know what it is, but it made him physically lame for 38 desperate years. And when you live in sin, it can make you sick physically. It can make you sick relationally. It can make you sick emotionally. And it can make you sick spiritually. You know, I think some marriages are sick because either one or both of those people in that marriage are living in sin of some sort. It might be that there's an adulterous affair. It might be that there's a sin of unforgiveness in that relationship. It might be there's some type of physical or or emotional abuse taking place in that relationship. And it will make your marriage suffer. I don't know if you ever do this. But sometimes I will watch a replay of a South Carolina baseball game or South Carolina football game. Now, sometimes I don't see the actual game and I don't know who won. And I'll go back and watch it later as a replay. And it's like I'm watching it for the first time because I don't know the results. And I'll start watching that replay. And I don't know if you ever do this, but I'll start watching it and I'll start getting curious. I want, to know who, I want to know who won the game. So I'll fast forward it to the end so I can know who won. And then that way I can know when I watch this game whether I'm going to enjoy it or whether it's going to make me sick. Can anybody else relate? Because I know if we win, I'm going to enjoy it. But if we don't, I'm not. And and, and John, I mean, excuse me, and James tells us in James chapter 1, that's how you ought to view your sin. You ought to fast forward your sinful desire to find out what the end of it will be before you embark on it. In James chapter 1 verse 14, James says this, But each one is tempted when he is drawn away by his own desires and enticed. And then when desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is full grown, brings forth death. Sin is lethal. It brings death. And so James is saying to you and me, you need to make sure you fast forward your sinful desire to see what the outcome will be before you do it. Will it be something that will make you sick or will it be something you can enjoy? Will this decision make me sick or will it make me better? Before you have that adulterous affair, you need to fast forward to see where it ends. And young people, I would just say this to you this morning. Before you uh, flirt with drugs or alcohol, you need to fast forward to see where it ends. What is the end of this behavior? Is it life or is it death? Sin will make you sick. In fact, it has made us all sick. John doesn't tell you this man's name. I don't know this man's name. It could be Steve. It could be Jamie. It could be JB. It could be Chris. We don't know his name and I think he doesn't give us a name for a reason because this man represents all of us in some way. We are all in this story. We're this man. We're sick with sin and sin is a deadly disease that has infected all of us. In Romans chapter 5 verse 12 Paul said this. 
Just as through one man, Adam, sin entered the world. And death through sin. And so death spread to all men. You know why? Because all have sinned. So death is spread to all of us. I'm going to give you some very political words for a moment. Sin is epidemic. It has spread to all of us. Sin is pandemic. Nobody is immune. Sin is systemic. All of our problems will always go back to a root cause. Sin is systemic. It's epidemic, it's pandemic, it's systemic. And there's no man-made remedy for sin. Only at the house of mercy can our sin be resolved. Only at the feet of Christ can we be healed. Now CNN might not tell you that. The CDC might not tell you that. Fauci might not tell you that. But sin has permeated all of us and has rendered us powerless and there's only hope in Christ. You say, well, I'm not powerless. I'm strong. I, I go out, I go to the gym, I work out, I'm strong. I can lift, you know, I can bench press 300 pounds. I'm strong physically. You say, well, you know, I'm, I'm strong intellectually. I read a lot, I'm smart, I'm intelligent. I don't care how powerful you are or how smart you are. You'll never overcome sin in your own strength and you will never out smart sin in your, with your own intellect. You know, I think about Je- uh, Jeffrey Epstein. Jeffrey Epstein was a financially strong person. He was a financially powerful person. He was a multimillionaire, if not billionaire. He was friends with the most powerful people in the world. He was friends with presidents. He was friends with royalty. He was friends with celebrities. I mean, when it came to uh, finances, he was powerful financially. When it came to social relationships, he was powerful socially, but he was powerless morally. How do we know that? June, I mean, July 2019, he was arrested for sex trafficking charges and died in prison. You might have the power to do what you want to do, but you do not have the power to do what you should do. We're powerless. In Romans chapter 5, verse 6, the Apostle Paul said it this way, For when we were still without strength, When we were still without power, what did he mean? We were without strength. He said we do not have the strength morally to do what we ought to do consistently. Let me ask you a question this morning. Do you ever struggle with sin? Go ahead and nod your head just like this. Because we all do, don't we? We struggle with sin. Because we're powerless against sin in our own strength. And so when it comes to sin, we are without strength. In Romans chapter 7... Verse 14, the Apostle Paul said it this way, and listen very carefully. He said, we know that the law is spiritual, but I am carnal, sold under sin. For what I am doing, I do not understand. For what I will to do, what I want to do, that's not what I practice. But what I hate, that's what I do. You ever felt that way? And then in Romans 7, 18, he even goes a little further. He says, for I know that in me, that is in my flesh, nothing good dwells. For to will is present with me, but how to perform what is good, I do not know. I want to do the right thing, but how to do it, I don't know. For the, thing, for the good that I will to do, I do not do. But the evil that I will not to do, that's what I practice. Now, if I do what I don't want to do, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in me. You feel that? That's who we are. We struggle with sin. And now today, this morning, we're all sitting at the house of mercy, needing God's grace. 
We are powerless to hear, to see, to do in our own strength. Sin has crippled us and caused us to wither spiritually. Now the lethality of sin leads us to our next point. It creates in us a longing in our search. A longing in our search. Look at verse 5. Now a certain man was there who had an infirmity for 38 years. Now the Bible says all these sick people, all these diseased people would congregate here at the pool of Bethesda at the house of mercy. They were looking for some kind of miracle. They wanted something to happen in their lives. And maybe you came this morning and maybe you're looking for a miracle. Maybe you're here this morning and you need a marriage miracle. Maybe your, your marriage is on the rocks and you need a marriage miracle this morning. Or maybe you've come this morning and you're longing for a relational miracle. Maybe you have a broken relationship with a friend of yours and maybe a family member or maybe a feather, fellow brother or sister in Christ and you have this broken relationship and you want God to do a, a relational miracle in your life. Or maybe you're struggling financially. You've got bills coming due, you've lost your job, and you need a financial miracle or a vocational miracle. Or maybe this morning you're struggling emotionally. Maybe you found out you've got some health problems and you're struggling emotionally. Or maybe you've lost someone that you love dearly and you're struggling emotionally and you need an emotional miracle. Or maybe you came this morning because you need a spiritual miracle. You realize how far away you've drifted from Christ. And you need a spiritual miracle in your life. You want to be close to the Lord Jesus once again. You want to be close to the King of Kings once again. And you're longing for a spiritual miracle. Well, this man, he came to the house of mercy looking for a physical miracle. He was struggling for 38 years. You know, we can just blow past 38 years and think nothing of it. You know, those people saw him regularly at the pool of Bethesda, longing to be healed, longing to be better. But I don't think everybody knew him. They weren't there maybe whenever he struggled to get dressed in the morning before he went there. They weren't there whenever he was struggling to feed himself when he was by himself. They weren't there when he felt lonely because he was so alienated at times. They weren't there. They didn't know all those details but Jesus knew this man. He knew he had an illness. And he knew he had been there a long time. Look at uh, verse 6. It says, When Jesus saw him lying there and knew he had already been there in that condition a long time. You may have been suffering so long that you think God's forgotten you. God sees you and he knows exactly where you are. He sees and he knows. And Jesus saw this man and he came to this man and he said to this man, Do you want to be made well? Jesus asked this man, Do you want to be made well? He's asking a man who's been in that condition for 38 years longing for a miracle, Do you want to be made well? Is that not the craziest question you've ever thought of? I mean, well, I can't say that. I know when I was growing up, my parents used to ask me some kind of crazy questions. I'd be getting in trouble sometimes. Maybe you had that happen. You ever had your parents say, Do you want a whipping? Well, what kind of question is that? Well, yeah, I'd love a whipping. What do I need to do to get one? <laughs> Jesus asked this man, do you want to be made well? And at first glance, you'll look at that question and think that was not a smart question. But I think this is one of life's most important questions. 
Do you want to be made well? That word well means to be made whole. It means to be made complete. Do you want to be made well? Do you want to be not just physically well, but do you want to be spiritually whole? And Jesus asked this man, do you want to be whole? Do you want to be complete? Seems odd to ask a man who's been lame 38 years if he wants to be made whole. But you know, some people don't want to be made whole. Some people, I think, have lived so long in their brokenness that they kind of depend on it. And they don't long to be really set free. I mean, you got to think about it. If Jesus heals this man, his life is going to change. He's going to have to start going to work. He's going to have to be productive. His life will change. Does he really want to be made well? Does he really want to be made whole? What if I ask you this morning, do you want God to heal your marriage? You'd say, well, absolutely. I want God to heal my marriage. Are you willing to do what God's told you to do in your marriage? Husbands, are you willing to love your wives as Christ loved the church? Ladies, are you willing to submit to your husband's leadership as Christ submits, I mean, the church submits to Christ? You say, well, yeah, I want God to heal my marriage, but I'm not willing to do that. Do you want to be made well? Maybe you have a strange, strained relationship and you want God to heal it. Are you willing to forgive the hurt that somebody has caused you with the same forgiveness by which you have been forgiven? You say, well, I want God to heal my relationship, but I, I don't think I can forgive. You know, I've discovered in my very few years of ministry, there are many people who don't really want to be well. They, like, they, just, they want to live in their broken status. They kind of rely on their broken status as a crutch. I mean, let me give you an example. How many of you go to your doctor and you're not feeling well? You say, Doc, I'm just not feeling good. Can you tell me what's wrong with me? He does your blood work. He checks your vitals. He listens to you tell the story about your habits. And then, then he says, well, you know, you're a little overweight. You need to lose some weight. You need to change your diet. Or he'll say, you know, uh, you, you're diabetic. You need to cut back on the sugar. Or he'll say to you, you know what, your cholesterol's high. You need to start exercising. You know, you know what we say to our doctor when he, when he says that to us? We say, can't you just give me a pill? I mean, we'd rather have a pill than change the way we live. And so whenever Jesus asks this man, do you want to be made whole? What he's really asking is, are you willing to change? Are you willing to be different? Do you really want to be made whole? So many times we just don't want to be whole. We don't want to change how we live. We just want to peel. Sometimes people will come by and they'll talk to me and they'll share with me something that's going on in their lives. And you know what? I always take the word of God because I really feel like that's where the answers are, right? So we take the word of God and I begin to show them in the word of God what it says about the issue that we're dealing with. Because I want to look to the wisdom of God for my life's decisions. And people will walk out and they will ignore everything we just talked about. They don't want to give up that ungodly relationship. They don't want to lay down that drug problem. They don't want to change their spending habits. And so they keep spending more than they earn and stay in financial bondage. Now you say, why is this the most important question? You know, you can know the Bible better than Randy Carlson. Well, that's hard to do. But let's just say you did. If you don't want to be made well, it will not change you. You can come to church every single Sunday, but if you don't want to be made well, it will not change there was a rich young ruler who came to Jesus one day. This man had every earthly pleasure, every earthly enjoyment that you could have, every earthly benefit. He had power. He had prominence. He had prestige. He had wealth. He had everything that this world could offer, but something was lacking. So he came to Jesus one day and said, what am I lacking? And Jesus said, well, you need to sell everything you have, give to the poor, and come follow me. 
That rich young ruler looked at Jesus and said, you know what? Nope, not going to do that. I'm not going to go sell everything I have, give to the poor and follow you. I want, I want satisfaction. I want to be complete, but I'm not willing to do that. And this rich young ruler walked away from Jesus just as broken as he came. And Jesus could have looked at him and said, do you want to be made whole? He wanted all the rewards of Christ without the risk of Christ. He wanted all the commodities of Jesus, but none of the cost of following Jesus. And there are a lot of people who want all the life that Jesus brings without laying their old life down. Some people want Jesus, but they don't want to give up their old life. You know, I really shouldn't even say that word, give up. Because you don't give up anything to come to Christ. You always give down. I heard somebody say that one time. I thought, that is so true. We don't give up anything to follow Christ. We always give down. That's what the Apostle Paul said when he said, when I consider Christ and all the things I used to think were valuable, he said, I find out they're just, they're just dung. They're just manure. They're just cow patties. And some of us are just holding on to cow patties instead of giving it up so that we can have the life that God wants to give us. The question this morning is, do you want to be made whole? And I want to give you one last thought. Jesus is a lover of our souls. We have a lover of our souls. See, Jesus wasn't just interested in healing this man physically. He was interested in his soul. Jesus is the lover of our soul. King David asked a question in Psalm 142.2. He said, or basically he says, no one cares for my soul. That's how David felt. Nobody cares for my soul. Maybe you feel that way. But God loves you and Jesus loves you and he cares for your soul. He he loves you enough that he died to save your soul. And so nobody understands the value of our souls more than Jesus because he paid the greatest price. Not too long ago, I went through all the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and I wrote down every single question that people asked Jesus. And then I went back to Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and I wrote down every question that Jesus asked people. There's a lot of questions. But I discovered something when I did that. People asked some strange questions. But you know when people asked Jesus questions, you know they were, a lot of times they were related, related to sin? They were. I mean, people would ask questions that dealt with sin issues like this. How often shall, I, uh, shall my brother sin against me and I forgive him? Up to seven times? Or is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any reason? Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? I mean, that's the questions we're asked. You know what I thought about when I read those questions? It's very indicative of us, isn't it? We always want to live as close to the edge of sin as we possibly can without going over. We want to say, how much hell can I have in my life and still get to heaven? You know, isn't that how we think? We want to live on the edge. Sometimes people ask me, well, is it wrong to drink alcohol? I say, well, that's not really the right question you should be asking. It's not... The question shouldn't be, is it wrong to drink alcohol? It should be, is it wise to drink alcohol? Is it wise? And maybe you have a different view of alcohol than I do, but I think we can all agree that drunkenness is a sin, and the Bible clearly condemns that. But do you know anybody who drinks who never goes over the line? Do you know anybody who drinks who never crosses the line? I mean, is it one drink, two drinks, three drinks? How many before we cross over? I mean, we just want to live on the border of sin, so it only takes a little nudge and we fall off. But that's how we are. We, we just always want to live on the edge. 
Uh, do you think, let's, for, for example, let's, th- let's think of this platform where a thousand feet up in the air. Do you think I'd want to see how close I could get to the edge before falling off? No, I think I'd want to step back because I wouldn't want to fall off. But we want to live so close to the edge and Jesus understands the damage that sin does to our soul. And so that's why when he asks questions, he asks different types of questions. He says this, For what profit is a man if he gains the whole world and loses his own soul? Or what will a man give in exchange for his soul? Or how can you escape the condemnation of hell? Those are the questions that Jesus asked. Why? Because Jesus cares about your soul. Very few people can illustrate the damage that sin levies against the human soul more than a man by the name of Oscar Wilde. Oscar Wilde was a very promiscuous person, very uh, sexually indulgent person, lived a very immoral lifestyle, and uh, he wrote a book called The Portrait of Dorian Gray. And in that portrait, I'm not sure he wasn't really thinking uh, thinking about his own life, but in this book, The Portrait of Dorian Gray, he describes a very a fictitious character named Dorian Gray. And Dorian Gray was posing for his portrait to be painted. And when that portrait was painted, it was so perfect. He looked at that portrait, he said, if I could only look like that forever, like my portrait is so perfect. And so he kind of made a deal with the devil that he would always look like this portrait, this painting, no matter what. Well, Dorian Gray began to embark on a very wicked, worldly lifestyle, indulging himself in every forbidden worldly pleasure. And as he began to embark on that lifestyle, he would go back and look at that portrait. He would never change. But every time he would have a night of of, uh, promiscuity or sinful indulgence, he would look at that portrait and he would begin to start showing flaws. And that portrait would look flawed. And every time he would see it, it would look more flawed after a night of of sin, sinful living. And it looked more and more flawed over a period of time. And it got to so point that it became so hideous he couldn't bear to look at it any longer. So he put it in the closet so he wouldn't have to see it. But it was reminding him of the damage that sin was bringing to his soul. It was a graphic image of what sin had done to him. And sin damages our soul and Jesus understands that. He's not just wanting to heal you physically. He's more concerned about your soul. And so Jesus hunts this man down after he healed him. And in verse 14, he said to this man, You've been made well. Sin no more, lest a worst thing come upon you. Now you might ask, well, what, what could be worse than being an invalid for 38 years? 38 years in a crippled body is nothing compared to an eternity in hell. Why do you think Jesus was willing to die such a horrific death to save your soul? Because he loves your soul. He's the lover of your soul. He knows the horrors of hell, so he was willing to pay the ultimate price and die such a brutal death. And it was Jesus' love for your soul that kept him on Calvary's cross. He took all hell's wrath so that you could be forgiven. Now, Jesus doesn't want just to help a a broken man who's been broken by sin. He wants to save a soul that has been ravaged by sin. That's why he came, to save our souls. Let me ask you this. Have you been ravaged by sin? Do you want to be made well? Jesus wants to make you whole. The question this morning before us is, do you want to be made whole? Jesus longs to forgive us. The vilest sin... The vilest sinner, he forgives. And he wants to save your soul.
And this man found himself at the pool of Bethesda, the house of mercy, longing for a miracle. And maybe this morning you feel like you are at the house of mercy longing for a miracle. A longing to be made whole. And Jesus will say, come to me. You know, Mark chapter 1, verse 15, Jesus kind of gives us the, the requirements of how we come to him. And this is how he put it. This is Jesus preaching in Mark 1, 15. He said, the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Do you know what that word repent means? It means to change direction. It means to turn from your sin and turn to Christ and then believe in him. Those are the, the prerequisites. And maybe this morning you've never followed Christ. Maybe you've never done that. And maybe this morning, in just a few moments, we're going to have an invitation. I want to invite you to come. If, you, if you're outside of Christ and you don't, you don't have a relationship with Christ and you want to know Him, you want to be saved, I want to invite you to come. I'd love to share with you how to be. And I think about somebody being asked, do you want to be made well physically? It'd be hard to imagine somebody being sick for 38 years and saying no. But I think what's more difficult to, to grasp is somebody whose salvation is offered, and they say no. And maybe this morning you need to be saved. You know, think about a person who maybe just living, they've been a believer, they've been following Christ, maybe out of fellowship, maybe that's you. And maybe today you realize, hey, I need a spiritual miracle. I need to be back in fellowship. And maybe today you need to come and just confess your sin and turn from it, turn back to Christ. He longs to, to forgive you and restore you. And maybe you realize in your marriage you've been praying for God to do a miracle, but you've not been willing to do what he asked you to do. Or maybe in your relationships you've been asking God to do a miracle, but you've not been willing to do what he's commanded you to do. Or maybe, you know, you're struggling in your finances, but you're not willing to do what God has instructed you to do in his word. And maybe this morning you need to come bow the knee and say, God, I'm willing to do whatever you take because I want to be made whole. Is that you? I'm going to pray in just a moment, and when I do, I want to encourage you to respond how God tells you. Now, you can sit in your pew and just make your decisions. That's okay. But it's different when we start putting feet to those decisions. And I want to encourage you to do that. Let's pray together. Well, Lord, I want to thank you first and foremost for the clarity of your word. It's so clear. I want to thank you for the conviction of your word. It is convicting. And Lord, I want to thank you for the comfort of your word because it is comforting to know that you love us with an everlasting love. You loved us and you demonstrated that while we were still sinners, you died for us. So we're so thankful to know that we are loved by you in such a wonderful, marvelous way. And Lord, I know there may be somebody here that despite your love for us, we refuse you, we reject you, we turn away. But Lord, if there's somebody here this morning that needs to come back, I just pray your Holy Spirit work in their heart and speak to them. Lord, I pray that if somebody's battling with an issue and they want to be made well and they know you've commanded them to do some things and they've just been rebelling against that, I pray that you'd help them this morning to come. Lord, if for somebody who doesn't know you and they've been walking just completely away from you, I pray that you'd draw them today. Lord, we just surrender these moments to you. Help us to obey you, whatever you tell us to do. And we ask you to do every question. Amen.